Welcome to Airwave. Airwave is a conversation hosted by me, Morgan Page, where music and technology converge to tell the stories behind the artists and the architects of creativity and technology. Radio is where I first discovered electronic music in the countryside of Vermont, and music and technology provided the path forward. Airwave is an exploration of how people make their art and how technology plays an essential role in the process. The show is largely conversational, but doesn't shy away from going deep and technical in the process. When it struck me, I mean, really, really struck me that this is what I was called to do. There was absolutely, I mean, it grips you like I hear people talk about types of addiction, you know, where it's like there's not an alternative to this. There's a company right now that everyone listening to this that is music facing would think is a sound company. They would think they make sounds. That's what their business model is. That's how they keep their lights on every month. And they're not a sound company at all. In fact, the sound part of their business is a loss leader. They're an AI company. And what they're doing is they are storing and watching what people are making. And if you read the terms and conditions of their service, when you are sharing your sessions with them, they're allowed to use them as a training set. And ultimately that creates this really weird gray area, Morgan, where who owns that? All right, welcome back to Airwave. My next guest is BT. He is a legend in the electronic music world, known for his pioneering use of the stutter edit, which he created from scratch. And he's built into a suite of plugins for Isotope, including stutter edit and brake tweaker. He's scored huge Hollywood blockbuster movies like Fast and the Furious, Go, Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, and has even scored Disney, Disney Shanghai and the Tomorrowland area. So welcome, BT. We had a great discussion. Uh, we talked about everything from AI, neural networks, and the future of music to his personal creative process for how he creates a song and how he manages his time, how he tackles big projects like plug-in development, and much more. It's going to be a big, deep dive. We're going to get geeky. We're going to get into the details. So enjoy. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. All right, so take me back. Let's just touch briefly on your background starting up. Uh, what was the 10-year-old BT into? And like, what, was, what sparked everything for you at that young age? Well, I love that you jumped to 10 years old. It's right. like, a, it's, <laughs> it's, that's, a, that's a cool age for me. Because, um, yeah, I mean, I was a really nerdy kid. And uh, I didn't have, a, you know, some sort of blossoming or big social life. I was very, uh, internal kid. And, um, by that point, by the age of 10, I'd been studying uh, piano and I'd been studying composition for quite some time. Actually I started piano Suzuki when I was four, four And then I was, I studied the Washington conservatory starting when I was seven. So I was this really nerdy, introverted, extremely introverted, 
uh, kid that was interested in electronics and interested in classical music. And it was right around that time. That's why I love that you picked that time that I started to become aware of this kind of cultural phenomenon of breakdancing music and culture. And that was sort of the impetus that led me into the whole electronic music thing was the early, you know, man, Parish, nucleus, bambada, all that kind of stuff really got me in craft work is another one, which is weird. Cause they're like, you know, German band. <laughs> um, but uh, it's how I discovered all the early 80s uh, English New Wave stuff, and that made me fall in love with synthesizers. So, um, yeah, I have, I have fond memories of that time for sure. It's like taking apart micro cassette recorders and stuff that my dad would get from his work and making things out of Radio Shack project kits. So it was all, you know, um, electronics and uh, classical music, but that was the time where I started to sort of fall in love with the drum machine and the synthesizer. Was there a first synth for you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm curious to hear what yours was. Yeah. My first (laughs) synth, um, my first synth, it's funny too, because now it's one of those ones where people sort of like, you know, remember it really as like, Oh, it's this incredible thing. And I'm like, Oh God, I struggled with that synth so bad. Um, I, uh, I don't know if you can see, but I still have the calluses to prove it. Um, I was I, I was had like a lawn mowing uh, empire in um, <laughs> my little neighborhood in in Rockville, Maryland, and it's how I got all my first equipment. So um, I was just mowing lawns all summer, and I was shoveling driveways in the winter, um, and raking people's leaves, and delivering papers, and all that kind of stuff. And I had this big. Uh, like a water bottle, you know, for like a water cooler thing, but it was made out of glass and that was my, my bank. And so I used to put my, you know, fives and tens in there for mowing lawns. And then every six months I'd flip it over and count it. And, um, that's how I got my first synth, which was a Juno 106. So, um, (laughs) yeah. So, uh, that Juno 106 has a crazy story around it too, like a long arc through my life left me and came back. It's a long story, but, um, yeah, that was my first synth. And what I wanted, of course, is, you know, a profit five or a Jupiter eight, but, you know, as like a suburban kid and, you know, in a middle-class family, there's no way that was ever, ever, ever going to happen. So I was really lucky to have it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. I went to like a boys school, like there was no slinging Um, drugs. Sadly, I guess. It's funny because, you know, I bring up the age of like 10 and 12. I feel like that's the time where there's this threshold shift where everything in your world, if you're if you're in music, something happens around that age. And maybe now it happens earlier. I don't know. But you're at this age where you start mm-hmm. something sparks the passion. Like you you play a synth for the first time and that changes everything. Or I, I like learned about MIDI for the first time in grade school. And it was like, wait, the computer is talking to the instrument. And it's just these like... <laughs> these shifts happen. It's crazy. I mean, I, I didn't have a Juno 106. I had a Casio SK-1. So I, that was the very ghetto beginning. I love that. Which is, <laughs> you know, I, a lot I of people have that, that apparently. That's a, dude. Yeah, that's actually like, a, I don't know if you still have it, but that's a great circuit bent instrument. That yeah, that right. bends really well. Yeah. Anyway, if you're like on <laughs> eBay late at night or if you yeah. still have it, that's like a great uh, a great circuit bent instrument i hear you though man it's it's a really interesting kind of idea is these sort of 
you know, it's crazy too, because it's like our prefrontal cortex is starting to come more online at that time developmentally, you know, neurobiologically. And there, there's all these shifts happening in a person of that age. And um, it is interesting to see those kind of, you know, shining moments where there was this really kind of temporal shift yeah. for you. I love that about MIDI for you. That's yeah, really yeah, it was cool. Weird. It, that was the same time around where I just learned about like modems and, you know, modems are just getting fast enough to connect to BBSs and that world was opening up. Yeah. But, but I think it's weird. Like if yeah. at that age, at that t- 10 to 12, something about like, maybe, you know, right then what you want to do the rest of your life. Like not everyone does, but maybe it, those moments uh, come to you and you can kind of see your path uh, that you, and it just seemed clear. I don't know if it was for you. Like for me, I know it was personally like, I got to do whatever I can to be able to do this for a living, even though it's not realistic. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I can't even possibly explain how much I understand what you're saying. Um, you know, and, and uh, I don't know what the community that you grew up in was like, but I grew up in this very sort of middle to lower middle class community where there were no artists. There was no kind of anchoring point of reference as if that was the potential outcome of your life. And so, um, you know, my mom was, uh, my dad worked for the federal, federal government um, for the, the uh, DEA and, and the FBI. My mom was putting herself through, um, through grad school and in med school. So, you know, um, everybody was academics and, you know, uh, at best, you know, um, and, it was, there was no sort of bandwidth of even possibility that your life would end in a, a career in the arts. But, but like you, when it struck me, I mean, really, really struck me that this was what I was called to do. There was absolutely, I mean, it grips you. Like I hear people talk about types of addiction, you know, where it's yeah. like, there's not an alternative to this. You yeah. Know, you this feel it in your blood. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I I love that because um, I think it is happening earlier too now. There's an interesting, there's some interesting stuff to unpack there. I've been reading this, I just finished this great book by um, uh, Stephen Kotler about uh, flow. And he was talking about, it's basically the hundred monkey sort of, you know, idea of once uh, a group of a hundred monkeys, you know, is able to take something and define it as a tool and utilize it. Then I'm sure you've heard about this study, even unrelated packs of monkeys, even sometimes miles or hundreds of miles away have this tool acquisition. And hmm. it's this remarkable thing and it kind of can't figure out how that works. But he was talking about it as it relates as it relates to skill acquisition or, you know, breaking a kind of known paradigm, right? Like the three minute, you know, mile, for example, right? Or what is it? The, whatever it is that, you know, the one that was broken in the sixties where once it happens, then suddenly, you know, six months later, a kid in high school is able to do it. And so I think that, I think that, I think it's funny because I think that a lot of things that have happened uh, generally, generationally for our generations and for the guys in front of us, like your Michael Boddickers and, 
Howard Jones and Thomas Dolby's like a, a huge part of our skill acquisition is from these paradigms that they actually broke through or these kind of uh, inflection points that seemed insolvable. We inherited their great, you know, epiphanies and successes and, and that therefore the generation under us inherited the sum total collective of theirs and ours and, and it's just keeps going. And when that's happening, this skill acquisition is getting younger and younger. So you see people with this like, um, you know, sense of mastery and purposefulness that are so young now in a lot of different disciplines. And it's like, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing, you know? It almost feels like, you know, these producers come up overnight. It seems like it. And then I feel like if you look at like Martin Garrix as an example, he still put his 10 years in and his 10,000 hours, which is still, it's pretty good theory. It's pretty loose theory, but he still put that time in, but he just started earlier than most producers and had like a really supportive family that built him a DJ booth, things like that. But I think yeah, now with, now with the learning options with YouTube, with videos that are consolidating all this knowledge and compressing it, uh, it's just speeding up the cycle, it feels like. That's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's unfolding in multiple sort of coterminant streams at once, right? Like the technology is evolving, the skill sets are evolving, the tools are evolving, the knowledge base, like you said, is evolving, the dissemination of information is evolving. It's evolving on all these kind of, you know, inner feathered together levels. And, um, and the sum total of that just yields mastery it's so much. When a person has those kind of like we're talking about, those kind of temporal shifts and they pick it as a passion, you know, we're talking specifically about music, but this applies for like anything now. Like if you want to, you know, be a mathematician, it's like, you know, there's ways to study uh, things in such a tremendous, you know, a dissemination of information. It's such a huge knowledge base that you can study things at a much younger age now, which ultimate, we're in a weird flux with uh, education. And I think that the, this whole COVID thing has pushed a lot of that to the surface. I think that this is a, a sort of accelerated a lot of curves that were already kind of happening in not just academia, but in like, you know, K through 12 type learning stuff. And I think there's going to be like a before and after this. Like if you zoom away from the graph and look at it on kind of, you know, a hundred year cycle that you're going to see this really strange, massive shift that happened right now, because ultimately it's like, you know, I think kids know younger and younger what they want to do, whether it's environmental science or they want to go into mathematics or they want to be uh, a musician, whatever it is. And you start to ask, why do I need to take all of these weird unrelated right. classes and, and coursework? And my, you know, my, I have either have to get a scholarship or my family has to pay tens of thousands of dollars unless it's a community school. And it's just, the whole thing's really out of whack. And I think that this actually, um, it, there's going to be this kind of teltonic shift that happens during this. That's hard to recognize while we're in it. That was a big rant, but no, you know, yeah. it's something I've been thinking about. I'm curious how it'll shift to with, I mean, I've seen a lot of producers doing music schools and that was a big thing a while ago where 
people get to a point in their career where they want to do focus more on mentorship and education. But it's funny because now you have all these, what's that thing called? Kanjabi. There's these platforms that let you sort of use them as a, it's like a WordPress or a Squarespace for teaching the classes. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I wonder how that'll change. It seems like everybody's offering class now, which is great. You know, it's like, there's no secrets now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that, I think that that's wonderful um, in a lot of ways. And two, I think that as it relates to music, specifically as it relates to music and film, that it's hard to find. When I say film too, I don't just mean like cinematography. I mean, the whole discipline, editing, uh, lighting, all these sort of things. It's harder to find reliable materials in those two areas. Like you can find anything, but anything is not necessarily a good thing or what you necessarily need. And um, so I'm excited to see I mean, a lot of it, I hear a lot of people saying things about, um, you know, I'm of the mindset you can learn anything from anyone. And, and uh, I, I have certainly learned things from some remarkable people that you would never anticipate are the sort of person that wouldn't be your go-to person to learn from, right? Right, right. Um, so, but it takes a lot of discernment, I think, for folks to be able to do that just in general, especially when you're starting and so I like the idea of these things being more curated and them being um, done by people that can back up their knowledge base with a cultural impact, a musical voice and signature, um, a legacy. So I look forward to when I see somebody that's like a name doing something like that, I sign up, man. I'm, I've, exactly. I've like checked out so many of these things and there's some incredible from like master classes, you know, like actual yeah, master yeah. classes to, um, to, uh, what was one that I watched recently? Um, there's just some, there's some remarkable stuff being made in that capacity. And I just think, man, like if you're in that 10 to 12 year old age right now, just imagine being one of us at that age now is just like, Dude, I was riding my bike to Venom and Music Store and, you know, would borrow uh, manuals about um, modular synthesis, about the System 100M. They'd let me yeah. keep them over the weekend and I'd bring them home. You know, sometimes I'd Xerox them and I'd highlight them. It's like you just, everything is on the internet now. It's just remarkable, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I love what you're saying with, you know, producers like Cashmere, where it's like you've got guys that are, They've had their success. They've they've had continued success, but they're not territorial about their secrets. I mean, there's no real secrets now. I feel like, but I love that you have people that have proof of what they're talking about. There's there's social proof of it, and that they aren't afraid to share it. So like Martin Vorwer, Kashmir, um, you know Luca Predolosi with his whole school. He's doing like positive yeah. one Grammys because it is weird. There are a lot of teachers that are like, well, they didn't. They can teach stuff well, but there's you know, I'm, I'm always a little suspicious if it's like somebody hasn't gone out there and done the the touring or, I mean, it's fine. It's great to have that, but it adds that extra layer of authenticity when it's an artist, you know, uh, you know, like same for me. I just like sign me up. Let's, I want to know what they, they are thinking about how they approach their work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at a point in, you know, our arc of tool acquisition and um, learning 
Um, I'm certainly signed up for an entire life filled with learning. Like it's my favorite thing. I like it more than music. So constantly learning, learning on a daily basis and have been since I was a kid. Um, it was one of the remarkable things about music too, because as a vector, it's such an infinite wormhole of things to learn. It's like you could spend 50 lives and miss Northern Indian classical music completely. And, you know, Balinesian music. It's like there's, it's yeah. just endless the amount of things that there are to learn. And, um, yeah, so I, I, like you said, I love seeing people that, you know, there's, uh, some meat on the bun. It's like, yeah. you know, you, their words come with a certain kind of, like you said, social commodity and validity based on their body of work and, you know, what they've accomplished. And also too, I love the kind of democratization of knowledge in the musical domain insofar as, you know, this idea, I, I remember in the nineties how, you know, there were artists that I loved um, that I would meet and I mean, I can think I'll actually I'll actually use them by name. I don't think that they would be and I'm sure they probably feel very differently now. But I met some of the guys from Underworld and and um, wow. and, uh, you know, I said to them, you know, what what are you guys using on the drums? Like, I don't understand how you're able to make your drums sound so punchy and stuff. And they're like, oh, it's a secret. And you're like, oh, you know, and like it was during this time where it was like there were actual secrets and and now somebody's asking me about that now like why do you tell everybody everything that you do and i'm like because if you take the time to do some of these things that i talk about i truly believe you'll make better music and it's really hard it's a lot of people don't want to do this stuff and so yeah. it, it feels yeah. like a a um you know, it's got like a, a social additive quality because it's actually selfish in a way. I want there to be more good music, you know? So, um, so yeah, I'm happy to tell anybody anything, but I love that there aren't, you know, my God, I mean, if you're the sum total of your tools, then what really are you? Yeah. You know? I'm sure people are like, like with stutter edit, are you giving away your sonic signature, you know, and, but people are using it in totally different ways. Oh man, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny because, uh, again, we, with something I stutter at it, you know, something that I quite literally have been working on since as a teenager. I mean, it goes back to tape hopping at a local, um, at a, a local studio here called Omega Studios over in Rockville, Maryland. And I, they, you know, I was probably, I guess it was 13. It was probably two years before I went to Berkeley. So it's about 13 and they let me tape up there one summer and I was cleaning toilets and, pouring coffee and all that kind of stuff and putting mics up. And, uh, the, uh, the, our local engineer, uh, taught me how to splice tape. So I learned to splice quarter inch tape with a grease pencil and a razor blade and a metal block and leader tape. And, um, and then at night they would let me use the studio. So I, you know, I pull my, my Juno 106 and my RX 11 or whatever it was at the time. And a couple crappy effects boxes that I had, or guitar pedals actually at the time in there and experiment all night. And the real epiphany moment for me was printing something to tape to quarter inch tape, you know, 15 ips, um, plus nine. I still remember even how to calibrate those machines is crazy. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, and saying, wait a second. 
So that's traversing a piece of tape, right? That tape has a length. So going at 15 inches per second, how long would a bar be if it was, you know, 122 beats per minute? And so I sat down with paper and pencil and I figured these things out. And it's like, oh, it's six foot three inches. And so it's, it's like, you know, three feet and one and a half inches means that's a half note if I cut it in half. And I can cut it in quarters by cutting that length of tape into four pieces. And then the, the real sort of epiphany aha moment for me was taking those pieces of tape and recontextualizing them, i.e. putting them together in a non-contiguous order, like swapping the third one for the fourth one or vice versa. And um, it's how the whole technique began for me, this journey with, um, you know, really a lot of it, like a lot of those ideas, I think about my, my teachers, you know, at that time I had a crazy, that was one of the most amazing teachers you could ever hope for. Talk about wonderful teachers named Satirius Philopolis, a Greek guy um, who was, uh, he, he's still alive, he's in his 90s, he's a remarkable sort of avant-garde classical composer and he Is taught me at Washington Conservatory at Washington. actually in DC. Yeah. And, um, just a remarkable guy and would now be called, you know, he, he, it's funny because I think about, you know, um, the sort of political correctness that we, we have now, which in some ways is great. And in other ways, it's like, I wouldn't have had a teacher like this. He was like, you know, crazy shock of gray hair and would come in screaming into a class with a bunch of eight-year-olds playing us bar talk and it's like you couldn't do that now like people's parents would complain you know what i mean yeah um i'd probably complain as a parent it's like it makes me rethink you know uh, my like own lash sort like of, that movie whiplash yeah <laughs> no quite quite literally yeah. and but what an interesting guy and so he introduced me the point of this was um my ADHD taking over the point of it was is here is me music concrete and the idea of tape splicing. And so I know I had some interest in it based on some of those things that he had introduced to me and Marcel Duchamp and the art of noise and some of the early pioneers of um, tape manipulation, um, Zanakis, a cage, um, Stockhausen. And so, um, you know, I wasn't, making music like that. I studied music like it, but I was interested in new wave and breakdancing music and early electro type stuff. And so, man, those first experiments on tape and cutting tape up and putting them together in a different order was just a formative thing. And I've spent my entire life chasing that high of cutting up music and putting it back together in an order it wasn't recorded in. Yeah, I love it. So how do you go, so you take that method, you do it manually with tape, you're splicing it, you end up in the digital world using note divisions and, and just chopping it up. How do you go from that to this stutter edit? Like, how do you, how do you plan this process? Like, what was the first step to doing that? Did you do a flow chart? Did you mind map it? Like, how did you lay it out? I love that. It's such a great question. So, um, so I'll try not to be too loquacious, but the arc is long. So I'll give it to you in a really tight bite. So we have that tape era, right? Which is when I the technique began for me. The next part of the technique really went to samplers. So there is this kind of intermediary step where I got my first sample, which is S900. I had some guitar pedals, like delay distortion, you know, uh, reverb type pedals. 
And so I was doing this nonlinear editing in a sampler, literally by using loops and destructively editing things through pedals. So digital signal processing through pedals. So that was this kind of intermediary step. Then in the 90s, when sound tools in the early, I can't even, you can't even call them DAWs, but these non-linear audio editors is what they're closer to. You know, we have NLEs in video. It was like that, but for audio, and most of them were two-track. Um, so um, the first one that I worked in was sound tools, and that's when in earnest, I really started being able to look at what I was doing and to do things with conscious rhythmic subdivisions, especially that were over what I call, you know, real note value. So 64th note, something that you would actually notate for an orchestra, for example. Um, so that early sort of audio nonlinear editors was another intermediary step. And then, of course, the first DAWs happened. So I think it was probably Logic 3 that added uh, Pro Tools TDM 24-bit support. And that's when it just went crazy for me personally. So that was when um, the technique really crystallized into a thing and people were coming to me and saying, you know, like somebody like Peter Gabriel coming to me and saying, I want you to do what you've done on this record, on a record of mine. Like, I don't understand what you're doing, but I want you to produce <laughs> yeah. something because I want that crazy stuff in one of my records. And so, um, and that's around the, you know, early logic um, as a DAW. And we didn't even have that term then, really. Um, it was still called a sequencer um, pr prior to Apple buying, you know, logic, certainly. Um, and then um, and then the next leap, and this really was your question, was first a thought, which was, I can't keep doing this by hand. It's too time consuming, consuming to manually do this by hand. I mean, it would take me sometimes for two bars of, of audio. I mean, I think back to some of the tracks on Movement and Still Life, like something like Mad Skills, Mic Check, or Hip Hop Phenomenon, um, even things um, from like Satellite. I mean, there's edits in there that, you know, two bars could take me two days to work on. It was wow. much closer to the workflow of how animators work, um, which is interesting because I've gotten a lot to know a lot of the folks at Pixar and I have this real sort of understanding of, it's like claymation, how I used to work. You know, you can't even, it's totally non-real time. You just had to trust the process was going to yield something amazing. Um, and so I, I had this epiphany moment where it was like, I, I can't continue to do this by hand and really serve at a high level, like it's impeding my, my creative output, um, the, how time consuming this technique is, I have to figure out a way to automate this. And that was like, whoa, that was like the moment. And I'm like, how am I gonna do that? So I'd studied C-Sound at Berkeley with a teacher named Dr. Uh, Dr. Richard Boulanger, an amazing, amazing guy. Um, first person to hold a doctorate in, com in computer music in the country, just a remarkable guy, still a friend and a mentor to this day. It gives me assignments to this day. I'm not even joking. Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. Um, but anyway, um, you know, he taught me C sound and I said, I should try to do really rudimentary, like, you know, this bare bones, simplest version I can do of just note repetition 
in C sound. And that's where it started for me. And so I wrote these big, huge C sound things. And then eventually I said, okay, let's take this and let's do it. Max MSP. And so, um, I found a student of Dr. Dr. B's, we call him Dr. Boulanger's and, um, and, uh, who was great at max. Uh, max is not my sort of first acts. I'm like, a you know, you kind of, when you learn one of those things, you, you have a tendency to stick with it. It's like, you know, oh, you use C sound, I oh, use super collider. It's like kind of either or, you know, right, right. Because they're so hard to learn. And um, so uh, I got um, this guy named Lu Luigi, and he helped me build um, my C sound um, ensembles and Max Patch. And then I started using that. So, and this is in the late 90s, I started using that in my laptop performances which is another hysterical thing because people literally, when they would see me on stage with a laptop, I went from 15 cents on stage to a laptop and people, no one understood it. No one had seen someone play with a laptop. They thought it was the most, they either thought it was cool or the most ridiculous thing you, they'd ever seen in their lives right. as performing the alpha version of live and this max patch. Um, and so, um, you know, from that point, I realized, of course, yeah, there were the Venn diagrams and mind maps and flow charts and all those kind of things. And I realized, like, this could be productized and put into other people's hands and yield something that is a creative tool for other people. And then so I just set out on that journey. I had no idea I was going to do it and uh, stumbled my way through the process of at first trying to start a software company. I'm like, Oh my God, do I really want to do tech support? Like I'm scoring right. movies. Like I can right. you know what I mean? Like how does this work? So a lot of fumbling around for years trying to figure out how that would work. And then, um, and then I sold Sonic Architects, my small company with its IP to Isotope and um, remained, you know, on as you know, creative head of it. And w I walked in the door there with close to 2 million lines of robust working, well annotated code. And we smacked some, uh, pretty UIs on them, made them cross-platform compatible and um, released them to the world. And that was kind of my first foray into it. And now it's, I, I swear, it's crazy, Morgan. It's probably like half my day is devoted to software development. I've got 11 wow. things in development currently. I was going to say, how do you it's balance crazy. this? Do you worry that you don't get to spend enough time on music when you're doing the plugins or do they all sort of cross-feed into each other? It's an, that's an amazing question. And, um, there are moments kind of your push through the, you know, the eye of the needle moments at the end of a development cycle. I mean, I know the process now, like the back of my hand, the first couple times was just crazy because it is, you know, in, I'm sure you've heard this, you probably use it, um, in development, call it agile development, which is very iterative where, yeah. um, and the idea is, to really empower people in the team and ideas come from these nodal clusters of ideas that until you put a grouping of ideas together, you're not going to know what's going to come from that. That's really cool. And sometimes those things need to be explored that are dead ends. Right. And you hear it called scope creep too, where, you know, um, a, uh, an application creator comes up with too many ideas and you can't cross the finish line. So right. I, you know, for years, it was the learning process of what it means to cross the finish line in a development cycle. 
And now that I've been through it so many times, there is that moment, the last push through when you're like late alpha entering um, beta where it's just an all-consuming process, but it's like two weeks. And then um, the push through into that is to see it in other people's hands and people are like, holy crap, like listen to this thing I'm doing with this. I get these crazy emails from like, Tycho or Richard Devine, they're I mean, things I would have never thought of with applications that, you know, sitting there in Xcode me and my development buds over at, you know, Isotope or whoever I happen to be working with on a project. And then you hear someone whose music you love and you respect as an artist using one of these things and it's all just totally worth it. So, you know, it's a long answer, but it's gotten, the process gotten so much smoother over time. And now, too, and it's the reason why it all started is because I needed these things for my work because they didn't exist. So I either had to do them by hand or I just had to keep imagining this technique, right? Like yeah. I'm working on a reverb right now. I've been working on a reverb for like the last year. Um, I shouldn't say who this one is for because I really shouldn't be talking about that I'm working on a <laughs> reverb, but I needed this thing so bad for my own work and was trying to do this technique by hand for years and years. And finally you just go, other people can use this. So it becomes really fun because you're developing a tool and you get to the, the coolest part is when it works, but it's not out yet. And then there's this kind of hang time and you're like, ha ha ha. Like you have this tool that no one else has. And you're like, this is like cheating. Like, how is it fair that I have this and then, you know, I get to have this for seven months before everybody else gets to have it. So um, it's a thrilling process and it really dovetails with the compositional process for me now. Um, so they really go hand in hand. It's, it's awesome. I love it. How do, you, how do you know when to pull the scope back like you were talking about scope creep? Because I think what I love is seeing how these plugins are used in unexpected ways. Maybe people are using mm -hmm. different sources than you're expecting. Are you does, are you factoring that into the design process now, where, or do you just you just build it as robust and as amazing as you can, and all these happy use cases and accidents happen on their own? Do you design around that at all? I love that. I freaking love that. So the user, it, it's now that name, the tight that title or sort of discipline has grown, and we call it a new thing now, which is UX or user experience. And we used to just talk about the user interface, like the visual interface to a plugin. And then it became a kind of broader discipline of study where it's like the psychological experience of using something, what it feels like to use it, right? So what it feels, if it's a physical device, what it feels like in your hands um, are the pixels between uh, buttons far enough apart for the average tip of the finger size, right? Or, you know, in the case of using a mouse, I mean, the amount of design things that go into some of them to make them a creative tool that keeps us in flow where you're not in a manual, you know, or like having to look up tutorials, how the heck do I work this thing, to have a degree of familiarity is an absolute art form. So, um, I wanted to kind of frame your, the answer to the question with that. And my answer to your question is this, is it really, uh, my personal design philosophy, the things that I love from an iPhone to um, a, you know, 
a blender, literally, that like I pick that device up or I sit in it or I sit at it and I know what it's supposed to do. My kind of expectations are appropriately calibrated and I can work with that thing. And it feels good to work with. Like it's fluid things happen in the right, with the right tempo. And I don't mean audio. I mean, tempo in terms of like finding things and locationally and the flow of things um, is, is such a remarkable art form. So my own personal design philosophy is erring on the side of leaving room for happy accidents, but making something that makes people feel great about what they're doing really quick. Like early right? wins. So they can, yes, exactly. So right. they can do something that they want to do that they can't do yet with some other thing, or they can, but they can do it better with this really quickly and fluidly, sort of like snowboarding. That's the curve I like for user experience, which is you can spend three days learning to snowboard and you're like a great snowboarder. And then, you know, they say good is the enemy of great. It's like to get from that good to, you know, big wave type, you know, snowboarding, like tricks. No, is is really hard it, it requires a lot of attention and effort so i like people i like to get people up to this wow i feel great about what i'm doing but there's room for them to grow for the people that do want to go that last five percent so yeah. um yeah stutter edit two is phenomenal like i really i did a deep dive just getting ready for today and i'm like i'm like i i knew like first version was great and then two you weren't kidding though Two is just insane. It isn't, and it's insane. It, it, it it's, really is. It really is. Like it's just, it's just so refined. And I love that you can move. There's this modularity. You can move stuff around. Because I thought for a while, like, oh, it's so exotic. I'm going to be committed to this exotic effect that's going to have these very niche applications. And then it's like, oh no, no, not at all. Like it all depends what you're feeding in. Like you feeding in a simple sound source like white noise or a drone, like a single guitar note or something. Right. And you can start with something simple and then do these complex treatments. But I found that it's, you can keep it, you can just add a touch of complexity. You don't have to have this in, insane swarm of sounds and it adds so much to every track. I, 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 I love that. I appreciate what you're saying there so much. And to unpack that, you know, um, I just love the, like if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that it's easier now to, and this was so, it feels so good to kind of hear this. It's easier to, to have things that have nuanced complexity as opposed to this, like your face is melting. Like it's this huge right. moment in a track complexity. And there's was so much thought put into being able to do that with this, with this version of this plugin. And it's, it's what I've been able to do by hand you can now do with this plugin. Like if you want to run it as this exotic reverb where you're side chaining a reverb and just pitch bending a little bit on beat four, you know, it's, it's no problem, you know, but if you want to do these kind of wormhole, you know, things like, you know, Ben Burtz used it for, for asteroid flybys in star Wars, you can make these crazy light cycle type, you know, asteroid burnout sounds too. Um, so it's, it's, it's real strength, though, I think, is kind of becoming discovered as people work with it, which is what you said, is using it for these nuanced things. I pull it up 
all the time and we'll put it like on my synth bus or on a bass line and have it just percolating along, you know, ever so uh, every now and again, or even across the whole track, but with just a little bit of it, it kind of in parallel and it just adds so much vibe. Like you, you know, you turn it off and you're like, Oh my God, like the track's dead. Like yeah. put that yeah, back like, on, you know, it feels like it's animating each track. It's adding this, this animation. So there, there's movement. It's evolving more. Cause my initial concern, like was thinking like, Oh man, it's, it's so exotic that someone's going to recognize this and hear, Oh, like, uh, you know, producers are always thinking someone's going to recognize the sample or this workflow mm-hmm. and they're hear stutter edit. But I feel like you, you can, there's so many ways to tweak it that you're not stuck with one stutter edit sound. It's, it's a million different sounds. So you're, it's, it's way beyond a stutter edit. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Totally. I mean, I, the, you know, I said when we were, when we launched it and, you know, doing interviews like around the clock about it, one of the things that I, I kept saying is this is a rhythmic multi effects engine. That's how I want you guys to think about this. This is more than just kind of a buffer cutting effect. In fact, you can completely bypass that. Like if you want, you know, like the example I use with the reverb, if you want a chorus that is unfolding on quarter notes, that on the last quarter note of a four, four bar, you get four 16th notes, the chorus speed. No problem. And I, I actually, the, the way that I've had to do things like that is in automation timelines, so arduous by hand and drawing all this stuff. I use it sometimes for one or two effects. I love what you said too about being able to resequence things because obviously it changed the sound radically, you know, um, but I'll use them for one or two effects uh, in a row. I mean, I saw the way that Tycho keeps using it is as like, a modulating delay into a reverb. And so he's doing these weird, like little pitch artifact things on the reverb every now and again, like maybe every four bars it will happen. And then modulating the delay speeds. And for him, his kind of, you know, uh, Andy Summers police type ninth Stratocaster guitar stuff, it's freaking brain breaking how good it is. And he said to me, he's like, dude, you know how long stuff like this took for me by hand drawing in automation, 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 and then copying bar, 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 bar. And he's like, I can literally do it on a single note down now. And I'm like, it just, it feels so, it's like making a record that people, you know, that you feel it's like great. And then other people listen to, and they're like, dude, this is great. And, and you go, it just feels worthwhile. So I really appreciate what, what you said there, man. It, that means a lot to me. Long it's huge. Process. I, I mean, I'm blown away. Cause, and I think it's cool to make, tools, you know, you're making something that's bigger than yourself, which is amazing. I mean, that's what legacy is all about, right? To be able to create something yeah. that'll go on and inspire other producers. And, you know, it's not like people have to use it just for, you know, film scores or just for, you know, big over the top things. Like you could have it be such a focused effect. Like I want to try it in buildups uh, just to save that automation time because I don't want to spend tons of time on the window dressing. I want to spend more time on chord voicings and hooks and melodies and then totally be able to quickly dial in these these nuances later on and not lose not yeah. get a song too many times yeah absolutely i love that and I, i'm i'm same as you man it's like i love obviously i mean you l- listen to my records it's like i love complexity and ear candy and things where you're hearing layers upon layers upon layers of things happening that are just kind of on the periphery of your perception at times because there's such density to the events that are happening. And 
the thing I love most is a great song. Like at the end of the day, like I want, uh, whether it's instrumental or whether it has a vocal is that's how I really want to be servicing people through music is through the music that I write or produce or collaborate on with other folks is writing a song that makes people feel better. You know what I mean? Uh, gives people a feeling of, you know, joy or hope or in a moment of elation, um, so, you know, you're not going to get that out of a side chain compressor. So I feel like these tools that we use, um, should be in service to the composition as, as a whole. So we're super lined up on that, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, it's so scary to me in the, the musical process where you've heard your song 500 times and you can get lost in polishing the atoms and getting like you're zoomed into the pixels and then. Cause you yeah. gotta pull back. You gotta pull back and be an editor at some point and refine the the scope of the piece and be like, "Ooh, actually, you know, I was working for twenty hours in this drum fill, but uh, where's the bridge? You know, <laughs> where's the, right. the chorus? Good enough? Like, whoa, 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 you gotta like have the checklist. It's a tough process. It's you're you're so right. It's it, there's so much. Yeah, there's so much to be learned from the generation before ours. You know, like a per, it makes me think of like a producer like Trevor Horn, right? Like, you know, Trevor Horn, by all accounts, is, you know, not a programmer or an engineer. You know, he's more in the kind of camp of like the Phil Spector types. But everybody I have ever met before that has worked with Trevor, and I've met a lot. I mean, I know people that worked on famous records of his from engineers, Fairlight operators, Synclavier guys, and they all say the same thing. That guy knows when the song is right he knows when it's right and that's what makes him such a freaking genius there's a lot we should remember from that because you're right man it's so easy to be zoomed in on something and not think about how it's gonna you know i mean part of that too is the intended audience right it's like who you're making music for um you know certainly there's music that is made for just people like you and i to impress us and right. it does, and it's, it's thrilling to listen to, but like you play it for your wife and she's like, uh, yeah, you should listen to this with your friends because <laughs> I'm yeah. not the target audience for this. You know what I mean? But um, so your wife's not going to be like, wow, well, you EQ'd this perfectly. Like, oh, that snare really <laughs> yeah, just cuts exactly. through. Like, beautiful vocal. Um, so yeah, you know, that, that definitely, that exists. Um, and there's certainly a lot of that kind of brainy sort of music that, um, that I love. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think the broader the swath of people that music reaches, um, and is, feels uplifting, you know, is, is what the service of music should be all about, you know? What's the, what's the workflow been like? Like the new album's out. What is, was this approach any different than I mean, you have so many albums. Is this number 13? Yeah. Yeah. What's, how is this yeah. different than the others? Like, like, tell me, walk me through like an average day, an average BT day in an album cycle. So they, it varies. I mean, you, you mentioned something before about kind of time management and because, you know, my work is multidisciplinary it, time management is, is, uh, a high priority of focus around um, our home. So I, I follow the kind of getting things done slash an addendum of time blocking 
modality. So I try to work in hour bursts. Um, I block, you know, sometimes two to three hour windows to work in. And, but with breaks, you know, they say that you perform best working for 52 minutes and taking a 17 minute break. I can never take a 17 minute break, but I always get up and like, you know, walk around or go get a glass of water or coffee, walk up the, you know, our dirt road, um, you know, get out of my chair. Um, and so I work in very blocked, um, sort of way. And it, it, it helps me to make these huge goals happen, like finish an album or release a plugin or, you know, produce part of Howard Jones's album, like big, big things where there's thousands of things that need to happen. So, um, so, you know, I use, I use development tools to do this. I use Trello as oh, a tool I, I use for, it's amazing. I yes. use it for all my projects. Um, and I use Slack. Um, you know, I've got Slack boards for all my projects as well too, for, uh, collaborators that I work with, be it programmers or, you know, whatever. And so time management is a huge thing around here. And, um, Basically, I'd say, you know, in an album cycle, I allocate per month about two weeks worth of either writing, producing, and mixing days. Um, so about 10 days, two five-day work, um, work weeks um, insofar as hours. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it works. And some things take tremendously longer than you want them to take. And some things uh, take, you know, less time than you want them to take. But I'm always working on these micro achievable goals. So, um, you know, and it's like goals within goals too, right? Like, so the songs every night before I go to bed, I make like a five point checklist of the things that so I sleep better doing this I make a five point checklist of the things for whatever I'm working on that are, and I physically write it down in a Moleskine book, you know, um, EQ your kick drum, respond to this email, like, like, you know, but they're usually related to, um, a piece of music that I have up. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of it, but so much of it is not what happens in the studio for me personally. It's what happens outside the studio. So I've got really regimented time blocked morning routines. Um, you start with a, you know, so do you start in the morning for the creative process? Do you take advantage of that whole circadian rhythm thing? I, I absolutely do. So it's funny because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very much a night owl and I have shifted purposefully totally. to the morning. Um, and it's just incredible. I mean, if you're in the studio at, you know, six or six thirty in the morning, those first two hours of work can sometimes quite literally count for two days of work. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Actually. Like, um, I have so many friends that are night owls that I'm trying to convert where I'm saying, you know, you, you like, you're really getting cooking around 11 at night and you're going till four in the morning. I'm like that five hours right? If you gave me that five hours and put it in the morning, first thing in the morning, 
after you get up, have a matcha or a coffee, do some breathing exercises, have a cold shower, 10 minutes of meditation straight in the studio, I swear to God, you will write music so effortlessly, you'll get so much more work done. You can sometimes, in two mornings like that, I can get a week's worth of creative work done. It's yeah. crazy. And I think it's funny because people think that they're like a special snowflake and like, well, I'm a night owl, so I, that's it's fixed. It's a fixed mentality where I'm like, no, no actually, it's, it's the same phenomenon, but it's going to kind of wreck your lifestyle if you have kids. You know, you can't be staying up till 4 a.m. You know, exactly. <laughs> you can't, it's just not going to work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, exa that's exactly right. Yeah, like I feel like if you, in the morning probably is even more effective, even if you're not a morning person, your brain, that's just how most people's brains will work. Like I, I feel like the middle of the day is just good for administrative stuff. It's kind of a black hole that 12 to, for me, it's 12 to four, maybe one to four. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's and then as soon as like five o'clock kicks around, creativity comes back in, you know, it's no excuse, but might as well optimize your day. Yeah. No, you're so, you're so right. There's an author that I love named Craig Ballantyne, and he wrote a book called The Perfect Day Formula. It's a great book. Anybody listening to this should read that book. It's an amazing book about um, – it's got some stuff about time batching and time blocking in there, but it's, it's more of a sort of philosophical, organizational book. It's a wonderful book. Um, and one of the things he talks about is – I think he calls them the three Cs. It's control your morning, surf the chaos of the midday, and then I can't remember what the C thing is for the third one, but I remember what it is, which is do what's important at night. And it's, I, I just, I love that because exactly like you said, I found my days unfold in a very similar way. Like um, there's all this administrative, you know, type things that need to happen in midday that uh, interrupt if you are trying to be in creative process and then at night, typically, you know, want to have a family meal, be with your family, hang out, read a book, that kind of stuff. And um, so if you can control that very first part of your day, it's remarkable what that does for you creatively. You know, it's just incredible. It's, it's hard too with, with managers, like there's a whole maker versus manager uh, philosophy, which I think is interesting where I feel like, People who are not creatives, they just want to structure their day with a ton of Zoom calls and meetings and they just schedule out yeah. their day and there's no chunks to really get any product work done. Right. Uh, so, I, I mean, it must be tricky. It must be challenging with, you know, developing these plugins. I mean, do you have a staff? You have, is there like a, a BT assistance and, or do you kind of just take it on head on and, and then rely on Isotope and other companies to, to bring resources to you? I, I, I love that you asked that question. And it's like something that Lacey and I literally, we like, we've had like rolling around on the ground fits of laughter, the two of us, because someone will say something like on social media, there's something they'll say, uh, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, but that's easy for you because, you know, because your assistant and your staff and, you know, um, your team, you know, the, the team one. And uh, since living in Los Angeles at a, at the, at the, the height of my hiring cluster cuss, um, I think I had probably in my house every day, uh, 13 or 14 people. I had a manager, a business manager, several attorneys, uh, you know, film agents, uh, television agents, and, um, you know, people that, um, uh, booking agents 
different ones for different countries. And, you know, and um, now the team is Lacey and I, and there's some caveats, but it's primarily the two of us. I mean, Lacey runs all of our, all of our business. She does all of the scheduling stuff for all of our companies. Um, and, uh, you know, does all the, um, the, uh, I mean, we're not traveling that much right now, but, um, does all the tour management, um, you know, hotel bookings, uh, backline for gear when we're touring the whole thing, like runs all that stuff. I, I pretty much show up for zoom calls, development meetings and write music, um, either in person or, um, you know, with someone or, or on my own. And so we run the show ourselves. I have, uh, there are some people that I've worked with for a really, really long time. that are really important parts of our life. Like my film agent, Laura Engel, who I've been with for close to 20 years now. She's like a family friend of ours. So she's such an awesome lady. Um, and, uh, you know, it's worked with me forever. So we do have a couple people that work for us in those kind of capacities, right. You know, we, and, and a great attorney, Matt Cutler and, and a handful of other folks, but insofar as like running the companies and running socials and, you know, scheduling and administrative stuff, we do all of those things, um, ourselves. So that's why time blocking is so incredibly, and we, we just wouldn't, it wouldn't happen without that, you know? Yeah. I feel like there's so many roles that are have been exposed now with with COVID, where you can see like where the dead wood is and who's who is really essential and who is I hate to say it but like disposable or maybe just not the best fit because you could have a lot of these DJs have overhired you know they've expanded their team too wide it's like they've almost franchised out too much. I I agree with you so much, Morgan. It's funny without using a name, a very close friend of mine who's like a. Uh, I won't say what type of electronic music because that would give it away, but who's an absolute, he's a, he's a lister and highly regarded, great producer, very, very um, busy touring DJ too. Like he's one of the guys that's out there 200 nights a year. It's just, it's brutal. He loves it though. Right. He, because of COVID he like, and he has label too. And so um, because of the, the COVID thing, it's like his, it, people don't realize, I don't think, especially in the DJing space, how many DJs live hand to mouth based on their touring schedule. And so, um, I'm, I mean, you know, with the way that royalties and things like that work, there's not a ton of kind of ancillary revenue streams for DJs. So, I mean, you have your handful of guys that have been smart and bought piles of real estate, like somebody like Tiesto, but yeah. most people, you know, live, um, you know, live, uh, based on their touring schedule. And so you're exactly right. It's like this guy that I'm thinking of, he had, you know, a group of like 14 people and Lace and I would look at, for example, so we were on a flight, we were going to ADE last year and we were on this, we just happened to be on the same flight. And he's a really good friend of mine. I hadn't seen him for a while. And we were talking and he's like, you know, who's doing you guys social media? It's so good. And, um, and we're like, we do it. He's like, how do you have the time to do that? And we're like, we batch it. Like we, yeah. we, we block, you know, we make 30 posts. We do all the hashtags. We prep everything. Um, uh, you know, we, we create all the materials ourselves. We have two days a month block to do it. 
And then we schedule them. They're scheduled, right? He's like, what? Like his brain was melting when he was hearing this. And um, and he's like, I pay, get ready for this. He said, I pay my girl that does social media. I pay her a t- 120,000 euros a year. This girl is making. Yeah. And I watch his social media and it's not anything special. I mean, it's not like, you know, there are people that are paying that kind of crazy premium for service that need that backend and infrastructure. Someone like Tiesto is a great example of that, right? Like, um, you know, or Armin, these kind of guys, um, where uh, delegating that is going to be a great move for them. Um, but, you know, for someone like this person that I'm talking about, I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm like thinking, how many gigs does he have to do to pay this one person right. on his staff? And like you said, covid boy has shined a spotlight on that and you know that real post estate. is dried up <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah. but that post is like gone gone now for him and for for a lot of other people and i think it's empowering for a lot of artists because you start to like you said kind of peek behind the curtain and see like a lot of this is smoke and mirrors these people that make you feel like um nobody can make you feel like anything but present the illusion that they're essential for, you know, sustainability is really kind of BS, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah. And then of course there are people that are absolutely totally invaluable that are, uh, in, in other roles, but it's sort of learning those things over time, especially hard for young artists, man. I feel so bad for, you know, some people that I've mentored to now, for years, you know, I get these crazy middle of the night phone calls sometime where it's like their friend is now managing them and, you know, and it's just all screwed up. And, uh, it's hard for people to make those assessments. Um, I think when they're starting out in music, there needs to be a better resource for that. Yeah. Yeah. Things are, things are great, you know, and as soon as you, you, the arc in your career changes, I mean, you're always trying to broaden the arc of the career. But like everybody has, it always, it never is constant, right? It's always a, a zigzag sure. or the arc, you know, folds back, uh, which I think is so smart. Like I love, I love how present you are with the social media. I think it's a really good model. Like you're, it's not just like, here's a, here's a video from a show or here's how to make a fat kick drum. It's, it's a little more holistic and I feel like there's a lot more value to that because we get to know your personality better. It's not just, not just a recap of what's been happening on tour. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate that, man. I, I feel a tremendous sense of obligation to to my my audience because there are, first of all, I, I mean, I've met over the years. It's crazy. I mean, there are people that I can think of, you know, that are C-level positions at huge tech companies, literally like Facebook, that were coming to my shows in the 90s when they were, you know, just starting some of these things. So these like incredible remarkable people um that have supported me creatively for for years from from guys and gals like that too to you know army vets to single moms to like this really broad diverse cross-section of people and i've gotten to know so many of them over the years i feel like i would it would just be inauthentic i'd be cheating them and myself too out of what is potentially, uh, you know, a, a meaningful interaction relationally 
with people that are just, you know, awesome people. And I obviously have this, we get connected by my music, but I have something in common with all of these people, you know, that they kind of, they pick up on via this musical thread. And so um, I just, I, I, I love those, the, that, that group of people love interacting with them. And um, many of them have become friends over the years too. So, you know, I have so many fan to friend relationships over the last 20 years. It's crazy. That's awesome. So um, I, I love interacting with, with uh, people on social media. Yeah, love it. Do you have plans for, I mean, you've done some sort of mentorship throughout the years with collaborations and are you, is there ever going to be a, a BT university or a, a BT book? So I have been approached now many times to do both a book and, um, and a, a course by the biggest one without saying what that is, but, um, and, um, and, uh, I didn't, I said no when I was approached about both of those things. And, um, and, uh, I don't think that I was ready but I do think that there will be a point when um, I'm going to do a formalized, structured, probably, and so something that is not like a class where I'm running it, right? And I'm interacting all day long with people. I wouldn't be able to um, serve people at the highest level doing that. Something that is really evergreen where I can teach some things that I know from watching all the videos other people are not doing in their work that are unique and specific, kind of these bespoke techniques to my workflow, um, things about creativity, things about time management um, that I think would be really, really valuable both to seasoned professionals and young people that, um, that are looking for that kind of information and sort of stumbling around finding little bits and of good pieces but not really all in one place what they would need to, uh, you know, to achieve something uh, that is measurable that they can say, I started here. I ended here. That was awesome. Like that got me over a huge right. gap. So I think at a point I will do something like that. Um, and um, I also think that I will uh, write a book. In fact, um, I've been talking with, um, Two of the folks that asked me originally to write a book, one of the publishers that asked me originally to write a book, and um, insofar as a book, I feel like I have something really interesting to talk about, which is not weirdly music. It's more about the creative space and what it means to kind of live, to kind of preload or precognitively bias your life for the creative space, like making room to be creative and sustaining that over time. Like, I think I have something really valuable to share with people about that. So eventually I will, I will do, I will do both of them. They're, they're, they're bucket list things that I want to do. I mean, do I want to do something like what Kashmir is doing? Um, no, definitely not. I'm so glad he does it. I think it's great. <laughs> I can't um, imagine doing those packs. Oh my God, man. I mean, that guy is a, and you know, he is a, I love it. You know, what tremendous discipline 
he shows setting such a great example. Man, that's there's something to be said there too that is not related to anything we've talked about, but I have so much admiration for someone like him who is uh, who's serving his audience at such a high level and put that aside for a moment is extraordinarily positive. And, um, you know, you and I have done this for, for quite some time. Um, and I think about when I started in the electronic music space and, you know, the whole peace, love, unity, respect thing, like the rave act and like, you know, raves were legal in America and, you know, going back to the nineties and it was this safe, welcoming, kind of non-denominationally broad, all-encompassing, cultural, sort of safe place for people to come and to experience and express themselves. And there really is a divining line in the sand when it became a commodity. And when, and, and not that things shouldn't be uh, commodified. I'm, uh, I, I, I don't believe that. I think that it's great that there, you know, people have been able to make a living making um, music and electronic music space and promoters and, you know, artists and, you know, it ups the experience for audiences. All that said, there's a moment when that kind of commodification began that, and I really can point to one artist and I won't, but it's maybe two or three were these very, negative voices that crept into dance music and bickering and fighting and chaos and very non-dance music sort of things. And somebody like Kashmir represents to me someone who is so remarkable. Like I said, serving his audience at an incredibly high level and staying in his lane and being a voice, a positive voice in our community. And man, I think we just need to amplify people like that because that's what, those are the people we want serving in the dance music community are positive voices that want to lift up the next generation of composers, the next generation of concert promoters or experience promoters, whatever that's going to be. Um, you know, uh, and, and, uh, you know, hate to make such a big example out of Kashmir, but he's a good yeah. example of that, you know? And, so and I love what he said. Uh, he was saying that like you either, the cliche is that if you can't do, you teach and that he's able to, you know, make a very lucrative career. I think even more lucrative than people realize, especially his, his tours overseas, define his sound and provide the tools and the mentorship. It's almost like virtual mentorship. It's like if you're taking all of your work process and your ideas and digitizing it, it's, it's knowledge compression, but he's able to do it to do both, which I think is great. It's not like just be a teacher and just work at a university and not tour. Uh, I mean, there's, there's certainly a valid point to that, like we were talking earlier, but to be able to do both and not feel like you're giving up your territory and your lane and being secure enough with that, I think it's so huge. It's, it's massive. It's massive, man. I do think that there, interestingly, is a selfish piece to that, which is, this and not negative selfish, but a, a kind of inward, like a self-focused piece to that, which is skill set acquisition and knowledge acquisition is amplified 
by teaching it to other people. Right, like right. as I acquire new skills, I, I mean, that that's why eventually I want to, in the same thing that I did with Stutter Edit, like take all this knowledge and sort of download it into these bite-sized things that I can share with other people so they can use it at will in their own way is I, it, it reinforces some of my own knowledge base, workflow, you know, uh, methodology, techniques. I'm privately teaching my friend group quite literally all the time. I and mean, we have a Slack thread for um, Cassette, which is uh, a label that uh, Christian Burns and I are starting through Black Hole that's all like early synth sounding music. And we have like a, man, I've got a, we have a Slack thread um, that, you know, I'm, we've, we've signed, I guess, about a dozen artists now. I'm teaching these freaking guys all day long. And it it's crazy because, and that's the piece that is sort of self-oriented, you know, where you're really, there's a reciprocity there. You're really getting something back out of the exchange. Because if you have to explain frequency-specific side-chaining to someone and why you would want to do that, not just sitting there and doing it, you start to say, well, hang on a second. Why am I setting the attacks like that? Why am I you know, waiting in this part of the spectrum? And it's sort of, I always walk away from those exchanges knowing something um, that, that amplifies my own workflow. So there is a piece of like reinforcing your skill set. It's really cool. It, it, it's, it feels like a very fair exchange when you're, when you're teaching people. And um, I love that, you know, guys like Kashmir and, and, um, and other people teaching these things are sort of killing that antiquated myth of, you know, those who can't do, you know, teach. I think there are many that do and teach but they do it privately. And so like, man, share that with more people. We all want it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want it, you know? Yeah. And I think it's so funny how, like, if you think about what is a secret in terms of techniques, is it, did everybody, usually you've learned a secret from somebody else. So is that, is it no longer a secret? If it's, is it only a secret if it's within a small pool of people? And if you found it on your own and it felt like a pure secret, uh, you know, What's to say someone else didn't discover it exactly the same way? You know, there's so much simultaneous invention happening, people coming up with the exact yeah. same ideas. It's, you know, you get the whole like Joseph Campbell thing about that too, but like, like shared uh, subconscious. But well, that's, that's that hundred uh, monkey thing. Yeah. That we were talking about this idea of like quite literally coterminant development of things or like one group of people knows how to, uh, figures out how to do something and then suddenly, you know, a world away, another group of people figures out the same thing at nearly the same time, you know? Um, yeah. you're, you're so right. I mean, again, I, it just, I, I, it takes me back to that idea. If you are your tool set, then what is that? What are you? Like you can, you know, I would encourage young people that are interested in composition of any sort, whether it's electronic music or, um, you know, in, in any kind of arts, it's like, you should be able to make your art sitting on a wood floor with a pencil and a piece of paper. Like you should be able to do whatever your creative discipline is with such incredibly limited tool set. And that you could share that with other people and they could say, yeah, this is art of this person, right? Whether even if that's, that's music, I mean, that, that's kind of like, 
my, you know, at the top of my bucket list goals is to be able to voice my creative self with, you know, pencil and a piece of paper. Because, man, if you're your tools, then what does that mean you really are? Like, are you nothing if your tools are taken away? Yeah. You know, so how can like, there be secrets? Look at like Splice too. Like, I think it's so interesting now you've seen these huge gains happen because of knowledge being passed much, much more quickly, but also that the sound sources are better. There's way better kick drum packs and drum packs that are like, you can get everything a la carte and just sort of, instead of yeah. wasting your money on a whole pack, you're, you can cherry pick everything. And then I guess in the end, it's your common thread, how you curate these and pick from different sample packs and weave them together in your own way that makes music you. But, but it's a much faster process, right? It's like, you're, you're just taking a hybrid of different sound sources and applying different techniques to create your unique sound. Absolutely. And that, that kind of cuts to the core of what is uh, an artist. And I, we're standing right at the apex of something that is, it's kind of the, the elephant in the room, which is, you know, AI in the creative space. And in fact, you and I, we did that panel at Naris talking about some of those things. Yeah. And um, it, it really makes me start to think that, and it's funny, I'm, I'm excited that this has kind of come up um, because you're somebody that I want to be thinking about this and, and the exact sort of person I want thinking about this and, and disseminating this information to other people, like-minded people like us, which is, you know, really at the end of the day, an artist is a a hierarchical tree of decision-making, right? Like if you really distill what we are down to something that is, you know, teetering on algorithmic, which is important to talk about now, we are just a, this massive decision-making tree, right? So our preference is our artistry, just like you said with the example with sounds on something like yeah. Splice. You know, you can unleash 10 different, very wildly different people on uh, this sort of, you know, sound acquisition tool like Splice, and they're going to come up with something that's radically different, even if they choose the same sorts of sounds. And so the punchline to this is I believe in my heart of hearts with what's happening, and I'm seeing a lot of, I'm working in this space myself, in the AI space uh, as it relates to creativity, that there needs to be an advocacy for artists as a training set. So stay with me here for a second. Um, and what it is, is unlike being able to patent or trademark our preference in, right? Like, so, you, you know, um, Prince couldn't trademark his style, right? Right. However, Prince is this amazingly complex, trillions of variable, um, hierarchical tree of preference and influence that guided those preferences and so on and so forth, but is a very quantifiable, albeit big, tree of preference, which in the end of, at the end of the day, we, we would refer to as a training set that is perfect for neural networks to train on. So I would strongly and loudly kind of proclaim that we need a way to protect the artist as a training set 
and or otherwise we're going to get into this really murky weird gray area where we start taking artists that are no longer with us and quantifying their entire recorded catalog from stems as a training set and then making new compositions based on their decision making and who owns that and my point is is that artist or that artist estate should own that or that artist family should own that or living artists should own their own hierarchical tree of preference or training set and i think we need to try to get ahead of the curve in the the artist community it's amazing the pushback on ai like when you talk about it when i talk about it on social media people freak out they think it's like some black mirror thing that's 50 years in the future and well, Ray Kurzweil says that's not happening till I'm like, you guys, I'm literally watching this in Zoom calls. Like, you would not believe the things that we're capable of doing right now that are not sort of public available. So I'm not talking like Google Project Magenta. I mean, for sound set feature topography and identification for, um, I mean, the things that, you know, compositionally, it's brain breaking. This is a real conversation we need to be having is what is an artist and how do we protect artistry that is not served by that artist? It's right. just their kind of training set, right? There has to be some sort of legal precedent that we advocate for that protects an artist, whether living or, you know, or no longer here, that protects their artistry. Um, and they're this massive hierarchical tree of decision-making, their training set um, is a real conversation we need to be having right now. I wonder, it's got to be, be an interesting application that you could consolidate everything that makes the artist's brand, their sound, their personality. Like, how do you compress this in all this complex information into one piece so that you can, you can own it and defend it, kind of build a, build a moat around it if you need to? Like, how would you do it? It yeah. seems like a, yeah, well, it seems like it, it seems like an, an incredibly daunting task. And this is actually what neural networks are so adept at. So in fact, when we're training neural networks, like for example, without being too specific, um, we were just doing a, uh, took a really large, about a million sample training set of a specific family of sound and allowed um, a, a node of recursive neural networks to analyze this pool of audio, right? On an Amazon S3 server, blazes through it. And um, the interesting thing is, is our puny little three pounds of gray matter in our head, right? Our wetware, um, we're able to think of things like attack transient or, you know, um, harmonic weighting or like the a periosity, like the noise signature of a sound versus the tonal quality of a sound, like, you know, the release, right? Like um, how compressed is something, you know, we, we have these very uh, definable variables that we look at. When you turn a training set loose on a bunch of, you know, guided adversarial networks or, you know, convolution based neural networks, recursive neural networks, whatever, you, you take this training set and allow it to define its own variables. I'm personally seeing things that are 30, 40, 50, 100. We had one a couple months ago that picked 120,000 variables to look at in an audio set. 
And there are things uh-huh. you look at what, what it's looking at, these similarities that it's looking at between different sounds. There, I couldn't define for you what that is that it's looking at. I don't understand what it's looking at, yeah. but I know it can perceive a similarity that 119th thousand variable that my brain has, I have no idea what it's looking at, but it finds a similarity and um, across the entire training set, so much so that it decides to make it a variable. So my point is, is it's not a huge leap for me to imagine taking the sum total of an artist's work, their output as stems. um, And I mean, God, I mean, now, you know, we have commercially available tools like RX where you can stemify things you know right. from stereo master right so you know the stems of an artist catalog and um take that and sick a bunch of neural networks on it uh for a month and let it come up with its its own interrelationships define all of its own interrelationships and these things are going to happen i mean they, they literally are happening and so, um, I mean, without saying what company it is, a massive company is, there's a company right now that everyone listening to this that is music facing would think is a sound company. They would think they make sounds. That's what their business model is. That's how um, they keep the lights on every month. And they're not a sound company at all. In fact, the sound part of their business is a loss leader. They're an AI company. And what they're doing is they are storing and watching what people are making. And if you read the terms and conditions of their service, when you are sharing your sessions with them, they're allowed to use them as a training set. And ultimately, that creates this really weird gray area, Morgan, where who owns that? And what I'm advocating for is artists need to own their own training set. It's the sort of thing like, you know, back in the day when I was all standing on a chair yelling fire about, uh, you know, we need a best electronic album category. I feel this strongly about it. It's the kind of thing I'd love to get together with a consortium of artists and put together a proposal, you know, with maybe the Naris family, um, that we take to Congress, honestly, like it's the sort of thing that there need to be, uh, we, we need to think big about this. There needs to be um, legal protection for an artist's training set. And that's going to become, a, it, it, one of two things can happen. We're not going to have that conversation. And then all, all of a sudden this day is going to arrive where people are like, oh, have you heard of this thing? Like Spotify, but it's, you can go there and you can co-write with any artist you've ever heard of living or dead. Right. Or, um, and you know, and then there'll be some fractional thing, you know, where it's like, Oh yeah, that, that artist makes one, one thousandth of a cent for their, you know, training set. And that's just because some crazy lawsuits are volleyed around by, you know, one of the bigger artists. So it's a conversation we need to have people. Me too, man. I, I yeah. want to, I mean, like right now, I think we're in the midst of a big thing of happening where Facebook in their terms of service says you're actually not even allowed to have a music listening party of your, even your own music. So if you're doing a live broadcast, 
technically they can delete your account for you playing your own music that you have cleared with any licenses. What is that? I don't know. That's 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 in their rules, and they had and they're starting to. I don't know if you've seen this with if you've been doing like live sets or live streams lately, but uh, they've started to get every week. They've got more aggressive, so they you know started with mutes, and now they you know they're cutting you live if there's any track that is they don't they won't even tell you what track it is that brought your feed down. That's absolutely crazy. I got to tell you something to check out that is awesome. Yeah, called Wove. Have you heard of that? W O O V. Okay, it's a Dutch company. It's a streaming service. It's like Twitch on crack. It has a high degree of, it's like Twitch, but for music. Yeah. Okay. And um, they literally do fair royalty payments for artists. They pre-clear tracks. People in the audience are able to interact with one another. There's a social component to it. It's freaking incredible, that service. And um it's on uh, iOS and Android, but it's they're doing a desktop version of it. I've been talking to them. I think what they're doing is because they started with the artist and the audience in mind. Like they're really framing it from the, the user experience, which is the artist and the audience. It's both, right? Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you bring up something. That, anyway, I had to kind of make a footnote there is to check that that service move out. I, I think yeah. them or somebody like them are going to be the ones that crack it. Um, but I, I've got really good feelings about what those, those folks are doing. Um, but so that said, it's remarkable. Something else leaps out there to me when, you, you know, and not pick on Facebook, but just is, wow, this idea of censorship in general on the yeah. internet, censorship, of ide- ideology, censorship of, of, um, the arts is just remarkable um, that, you know, I don't understand how that is, that is happening. Um, it's kind of just crept up under our noses where suddenly, um, you know, we have a freedom of speech in this country. Like, I mean, there are plenty of people that say things I categorically disagree with, but I, ha- by my own volition, I'm able to turn the page or go to the next thing and, um, believe vehemently that people have the right to freely express themselves. And I'm seeing a lot of the opposite these days on, on the internet. And it's starting yeah, they're just, to they're just throttle your out. reach. Yeah. Cause I think it's, it's gotten so extreme. I mean, the fact that, that in their terms, like I was saying, you can't supposedly even listen to your own music, uh, you know, to share it with others. But so like, you know, it'll just throttle your audience. It won't get expressed to your, your fan base. I mean, you have that side of things. Then you have like Patreon and OnlyFans, which I think that that's a really interesting model I've been dabbling with where it's like, go direct. There's no gatekeepers. It's a fair payout. It's a 90-10 right. or a 92-8 split with, uh, with Patreon, whereas Twitch is 50-50, which is insane until you get to be a high-level streamer. Wow. 50-50 of all the income. That's, like, that's unbelievable. Crazy. Yeah. It's I total think, insanity. It, and that's what I worry about is that, well, I worry that A, people will change the art they create because they're worried about getting taken down or getting strikes. So they will change the, they'll maybe create less or not do a live stream because they're scared about the repercussions of it. Because um, we've even had right. stuff, I had, I've had to do catalog whitelistings, like we'll go to Warner Brothers and they'll say, cool, you're clear for our entire catalog. 
And I thought, oh, that's simple. That'll work. Works for YouTube, but mm-hmm. Facebook and Instagram, they don't care about the blanket license. So I don't know. Without getting into the weeds too much, it's it does scare me though because they're making the lion's share of the money. These platforms on the backs of the musicians. Yeah. So that's what I, I oh, got to check I mean, out. Woo, it, woo, it sounds cool. It's it's incredible. Yeah, I some it or like I said, it or something like it um, is is the answer it, because it's that it's made with the artist and the audience in mind and this the social component to it i think is the coolest thing about woove which is people in the audience are able to interact and they have things that are it sounds funny but it, it's like watching their streams it's so cool for like they do a thing kind of like push the button with it above and beyond does yeah. but that someone in the audience is able to like pick a track and the dj will they kind of tap them in and they're there with them to play that track it's all, there's all this social interactive component to it that makes it really, really unique. So I hope they, I hope they go, but th- it's certainly a better, it's certainly a better model. There's no question about it. But the rub is always, you have to bring your own traffic to a Patreon type site or, or move. I mean, how much, how much is built in versus the existing network that's there. That's always going to be hard. Uh, and how do you how do you get enough traffic to, to really scale something to make it work for you? So it's tricky. I think I think I mean you definitely bring up something important, and it's you know obviously part of our you know business, part of our artistry is deplatforming people because you're right. It's like these um, you know all these tech companies are, are making a fortune not of just off the content that all of us create but off our data and our fans data and And it's just, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's un, it's unbelievable how, um, how onerous some of those relationships are and people, you know, they get a little dopamine hit when they open, you know, Instagram and they just go on about their day and they don't really, they don't really think about it. Um, so it is, uh, it's, it's a part of, it's a part of our job to be, you know, congregating our people in something that's not beholden to those, those platforms. And it's definitely a a challenge to do that, but it's also really doable. And there's a lot of great, you know, business models for that, that fall outside the artistic community. There are great places to look at for those kind of things, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's funny now I've, the default view for me was always like, well, you got to just put all your effort into Facebook and the big platforms, but it's like, wait a minute, there's an option between that and just your official site. You know, there's, there are yeah, like, like Patreon where it's more one-to-one and it's a smaller, but if you have, you know, a thousand mm-hmm. fans paying you 50 bucks or paying you 20 bucks a month, I mean, it adds up quick with that direct relationship. Like you could, you could super serve those fans. I think, I think it's enough. For, Absolutely. Like, like, Absolutely. I don't know. I think it can work for, for artists at, at our level or it, you know, it probably is best for people that are, it's a smaller, like a physical good. Like it's really good for people doing crafts and things like that, where it's hardware and there's mm-hmm. certain expenses they have, but um, to make a sustainable living, I think that was their whole mission, which I love. It's like, it's not to become millionaires necessarily, just a sustainable living that doesn't, it's not a four year career or a two year career. It's a life career. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I love, I love that too, man. And, and I think without things like that, I mean, you know, they, they call it the long tail. It's like you you look at, and I mean, look at something 
like Spotify. I mean, it's unbelievable. You hear somebody like Daniel Ike talk and he is so devoid of understanding of what the community that has built that platform is that it's, it's, I mean, it's like to the point of uh, just jaw dropping. And I mean, I saw, I'm sure you saw too, so many people's reactions to him talking about artist relevancy and like things have, things have changed. That's over. You have to see the algorithm and this kind of intervallic thing. And everybody's like, well, well, you changed it. <laughs> you did that. Like you did that. Are you serious right now? People are like, what is happening? Um, but you know, you, you look at how disconnected some of these services are from the media that has built them and the people behind the media that has built them, but how they reap the lion's share of the benefits. And it makes you start to think really differently about congregating your people in other places. Um, and also too, those can be a wonderful way to gather people where you then bring to other places, right? And there are authentic and congruent ways um, to do that. And finding the people, kind of subsets of those people that you can serve in a, in a different way, you know? Yeah. That, um, it's like a big sales it, funnel, I feel like. like you're, you get people in on these platforms, soft, casual, like casual fans, and then uh, bring them to be the more diehard fans that'll pay more money later on. Or I just have a more genuine yeah, interaction. I mean, yeah, exactly. And where you have the time to interact with those people differently than you engage with social media as well, too. So, yeah, I mean, um, it, they're important things to think about because at the end of the day, the reason why I brought up Spotify is, you know, um, is because there's 1% of the artists on Spotify make 99.7% of the money. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the CEO paid himself more than the sum total of all the royalties for the first seven years of Spotify. I mean, that kind of says it all to me, you know, so you know what you're dealing with there. So if you're looking for that for sustain, looking to that rather for sustainability, you better rethink that magical thinking fast. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah I think the stuff, it just, there's always the, the rub with technology. We just have to keep checks and balances. I think everybody just assumed all these platforms were are there to be nice people and police themselves. And they kind of get a little, little drunk with power, but so what, I, I don't know, like moving along yeah. with, with technology, you know, we've talked about some of like the pros and cons. What do you see moving forward with the current situation of there's no touring, those traditional revenue streams are done. I mean, you've been smart with these plugins and, and I'm sure that's, that's been lucrative. What do you see with virtual sets? Like companies I've seen like Sanzar doing some really interesting stuff where they're having virtual worlds, almost like a metaverse for people to perform in. This stuff sounded kind of mm -hmm. geeky and silly. And now is almost going to be the only route to create a compelling experience. Where do you think it's going to head the next year to two years? So uh, I think just from my friends that are in the, the uh, that are either physicians or, you know, first responders, my friends that are scientists and talking to my real brainiac friends and fans too about sort of where we're headed just in the arc of, um, you know, coronavirus. I think we're, we probably are about like a year out 
you know, a solid year out from things returning to what we will end up calling a, a new normal. You know, we're certainly in like this crazy new normal right now, but where life feels a little bit more like it used to, but there's still uh, things in place that are new, right? And so I do think that, I do think that there will be uh, performances and shows and all of those things at a point will resume, but I don't know that I believe that they will be like what they were. Like it's hard, I'm hard pressed to imagine something like an EDC or a Tomorrow World um, happening. It's hard for me to imagine what, what that looks like. Like we do that with masks and social distancing. I don't know. Um, I don't know that things, I think it will scale differently is my point, mm -hmm. right? With that. Mm -hmm. So I do think that we will return to shows and that there will be uh, revenue streams for, for artists and musicians based on that. But I think in the interim, there are all these kind of ancillary things coming up in the periphery that are really interesting, like you mentioned, and some things to do in the AR and VR space that are, you know, really compelling that I think at a point may match and meet that need that people have to experience live music. And what that means insofar as monetization for artists, man, your guess is as good as mine because, you know, I mean, all I can say is we, the artists, need to be as hyper vigilant and involved with these companies, iterative with these companies, involved with these companies, sitting on the boards of these companies to see to it that, you know, kind of best practices are met for um, a lot of the things we were talking about, you know, uh, creating a sustainable climate for people to to make music in and for fans to enjoy it in. So um, it's going to be, it's going to be wild to watch it unfold. But I do think that there are some things that are happening right now, like with schooling too, it's a sim similar but different thing that are, that are going to stick. You know, I think a lot of parents now are realizing like, wow, I would just rather teach my kids on my own, or I'd rather have a teacher that teaches our little neighborhood, you know, five kids and that they all get to study very intensely the subjects that they're interested in that are important for their, you know, and I, it's hard for me to imagine that going back, you know? So I think um, some of these streaming things are definitely around to stay. And um, I, it excites me. I mean, I think that there's some things happening, like you mentioned, that are really interesting. What do you think is missing right now from the, the technology space? Like you're excited about a lot of new technology. Do you think there's any real gaping holes in the music production world or in education where that you think should be filled? Like missing, are there everything from missing plugin to um, a missing company that's not serving a need? Oh my gosh. Yes, on every level, man. We would start a new podcast from that question. I know forward. we could go forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, def I definitely do. I mean, I, I think something that just leaps out to me there is, um, you know, is uh, I do think something that is really missing is a congruent and authentic interaction person to person, unfiltered interaction 
between artists and audiences because, and this weaves a really nice thread through a lot of our conversations here, because of this kind of titration of the big tech companies and how things are being filtered as they reach people, the way that people will interact with one another because they're scared they might say something that is like, oh, I didn't know you were supposed to use that. Not You can't use that phrase anymore that has this connotation or people are so scared to kind of step in it, right? Um, to hurt someone's feelings or trigger somebody or say something that is, and not because they're being insensitive, they just didn't know any better. It's like there's new rules for the new rules, you know? And right. so I think that, I think that a big thing that is missing is, like I said, is a congruent way for people to interact with one another in small pods or groups where there's not like the thought police and the PC police and the like, you know, the like who gets it police, like everything being filtered and you not knowing what's okay to say um, sort of interactions with people. And something I've seen that is starting to fill that void that I think is so freaking remarkable has such a hopeful feeling to me. Like it reminds me of when I first saw Twitter and it like the very, you know, I was in the first 200 accounts on Twitter and I remember that vividly when, um, I mean, I played at their party for a hundred and when they got, when they hired 140, their 140th, employee, you know, and Biz and Ev and those guys, like, you know, talk to them regularly throughout the years. Like I have fans at that company and uh, on, uh, uh, from developers to, to C-level folks, like the, what they started and the way it started was so pure and authentic. And oh my God, it was like this digital utopia when that thing began and such incredible high level meta conversations, authentic conversations happening between people on that platform and and i'll never forget the first time i saw something in all caps and i was like it's over this is finished (laughs) there's too many people here now for it to be like authentic so something that has filled those boots for me and i haven't felt like since those early days of twitter is a platform called community and if you haven't seen that you absolutely have to check it out basically what it is is an artist or a person of notoriety can get a phone number. It's kind of like a Google voice number, right? But these fans, friends could be a group of teachers, right? You could use, it doesn't right now it's currently like artist and audience model. Right. But, um, you know, I've talked, I've talked to a lot of the, the folks at this company and have been encouraging them like, Hey, make pods for scientists. Like where, you know, people could use this like a text version of Slack um, in the same kind of way where you're sharing voice messages and like, you know, uh, funny or serious or, you know, research projects, whatever it is. Um, But it's basically like an artist interacting with their fans over text. And so I've gotten into these conversations with people on there where it's like, like I'm texting with a friend where it's pages and pages and pages of texting texting and you know someone's telling you this remarkable experience that they had or something that happened to them and you know something about you know this piece of music that you wrote means so much to them and they could never tell you this 
on social media and there would be no other way to 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 reach the person. is it also the app that does is, it does it convert to sms or is it all within the app itself it's all inside the app and yeah. so um so but the the end user uh the fan or my hope is like i said in the pod of scientists right it will uh, eventually everyone will just use the app but um currently uh, they are just able to text message. So it appears on their phone as a text message. It appears right. on your phone as a text message, but inside the app. And it's like, it's just freaking incredible, the interactions that I've had with people on there. So I'm loving that, that one. That's one of the Is coolest things I've seen. Did you get Say it again? when it was, uh, did, did it get really expensive? Like it got it, they feel like they had the, it's gotten to a point where it's like a dollar per fan a month now or something crazy. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. I think it's something like that. Wow. I didn't. So I, they, I got kind of white gloved into it at the beginning. Cause one of the, um, the guy, it's a crazy story. The, the guy, the guy that, uh, the head programmer that programmed Netflix is like a big long time kind of nineties going back to the nineties fan of mine. The amazing guy and ridiculous programmer in the VC space, you know, done all these startups and he community is he, he wrote uh, community. So I, I've been, uh, you know, I got, I got put into it without signing up for it. So I, I lucked out. So maybe my experience is different <laughs> with it. And I didn't even know that, but, um, and you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I understand that they have to find a way to, um, to create value, you know, of their service you know, I'm sure for their investors and all the people that are participating in that. But I have to say the way that it feels as an end user is just incredible. I love it. I got to try it. We built a, a, my social media guy built a thing called Ringy, which is just, it's, it's text back and forth, but you have to manually reply back in a dashboard. So it's a little more manual, but it's funny when you brought up community, I thought you were going to say discord. Okay. Because uh, like, I, I didn't know anything about it and it was just, just like with Twitch, it was gamer only focus. And now it's like these little micro communities, little tribal communities, but it's not the same as individually texting people or small pods. I mean, so are you on community, you're hitting up small groups of people within a, it's almost like a, like a friend iMessage group or how does it, how big of a little group of people, or is it just one-to-one? -one? I do it both ways actually. So I use community some, sometimes like, if I want to tell, I mean, I've got different, different groups. So I have um, groups of people that are friends, right? So you can, you can, you can organize things differently. Like um, you can pair people together like, oh, you know, so-and-so introduced me to your music. And I'm like, well, can I loop them into the thread? And so you pull that person in and you have like a, that's what's so cool about it is like, it can, it, but it can be totally one-to-one -one as well too. And a lot of what I do on there is talking to people, you know, one-to-one -one. and you would think, Oh, you know, my God, that's like insanely time consuming. And again, me, Mr. OCD time block guy, like, you know, I devote an hour a week to it and it's a absolute freaking blast. I sit there and drink a coffee and actually talk and interact with people who've supported my music for 20 years. And we have these un. I mean, I literally, I've been in tears and not hyperbole or exaggeration. Some of the conversations that I've had with, with people on there. I mean, some of the stories that people feel 
comfortable sharing and divulging in what feels like this more, like I said, authentic, congruent, one-to-one context is so different to what someone will say to you in social media. You know, it's kind of like after a show when someone will come up to you and they they'll tell you this very real thing and that's the person in the room you want to spend some time talking to it feels like that that's what the the interactions feel like on there it's remarkably personal yeah i gotta check it out awesome man it's great well i I definitely want to be respectful of your time i know we've i think we're almost a little past two hours so uh what's i guess to wrap things up what's next for you you've got 11 projects in the hopper right now as always, juggling lots of exciting things. What what can you talk about? Any other uh, things in the future you can mention? Definitely. So, um, so I'm in the middle of uh, a three year project right now. So I'm about halfway, a little over halfway there on it. Uh, it's a three hours of music project, um, and I've handed in so far close to two hours of music for it. And um, that's something that is going to be coming believe it or not, it's crazy is, uh, will come out in 2022. Um, and which is weird. Sounds like Star (laughs) Trek saying numbers like that out loud. It's so weird. Um, but, um, it, uh, it's a project I'm so excited about and, uh, I haven't done a lot in this space. So it's something I'm really, really excited about and I shouldn't say more about it, but it's a very, very big project. It's kind of like when I did the project for Disney, for tomorrow world. And I, I worked on it for close to four years. You know, it's my first installation piece, 256 channel, 12 hours of music that we went there and installed in the park in Shanghai. It was like, I wasn't allowed to talk about it. It's similar in scope and complexity to, to that Disney project. And so it's a thrilling one that I, like I said, I've been working on for, you know, about a year and a half now that really is starting to take shape creatively. I'm super excited about Um and uh, and then I'm working on um, my I'm working on my next experimental and ambient records, um, and I'm hoping to have them finished early um, next year. Of course, for um, the Lost Art of Longing, we've got so many singles from that, so we're furiously making music videos and doing remixes um, for songs. Uh, you know, on the album, we've got some amazing remixes coming up for. Uh, awesome for some of the singles for that and some ridiculous videos that I'm kind of like, I'm even kind of mystified how we've been able to pull them off during quarantine. So, um, been having a lot of 3d camera, uh, fun. Um, nice. that's all I'll say about that. So, um, and then, yeah. And then, you know, that's just chock a block of development projects. My next, um, my next big project with the Spitfire audio folks, um, that we've been working on for the last, um, she's over, over about a year and a half, we've been working on this one. Um, we're in late stage beta on that, and that will be coming um, before before the end of the year. And then That's first the and second quarter. Yeah, it is. Totally uh, it is. It's totally different. Wow. Totally, totally, wildly different. In fact, if if you you'd like, this can make everyone jealous, but um, I'd love to put you on beta on that. Yeah, let's like, do it. I, we have. Yeah. A, yeah, pretty stable beta. I, I'll I'd be happy to put you in the beta group on that. That's gonna blow your mind. Um, but so that'll be the next piece of software that I have that comes as a software, not soundware. 
Um, and then um, first and second quarter next year, there's just application after application after application and, you know, a bunch of new music, bunch of stuff going with uh, Howard Jones, um, some new All Hail the Silence stuff. Um, and the last thing I'll say uh, is I got approached by one of my favorite bands ever of the 80s, ever literally ever like somebody I love, like I love Howard's music. And so I'm going to, um, either late fall or early next year, I'm going to produce a whole album for these folks. So, um, nice. freaking nice. out about that. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I want to save that one as a surprise. So, um, yeah, so that's, projects. that's some of it. That's what I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. I think we got some juicy stuff. So, Oh, it's my pleasure, Morgan. This is great, man. I'm so happy you're doing this. And I, I can't wait to watch this take shape for you. And, you know, it's great to see your face, man. And, and yeah. uh, happy to participate. All right. So there you have it. My interview with BT for Airwave. A really long, amazing deep dive discussion into the future of music. Not only how he got his start, but where BT thinks the music is headed. We talked a lot about AI and neural networks and he hinted at some shadow company that may be developing music creation tools for some other nefarious purpose. So excited to hear more about that. I'm really curious what company that was. Uh, and definitely check out his plugins, check out Stutter Edit and Break Tweaker. They're made by Isotope. I use them pretty much every day. It's great when you can get a chance to interview a fellow collaborator as well, uh, people you get to know really well in the studio. So honored to have him on. He's been an early influence since the beginning of before he even started making music. So big thanks to BT for stopping by. We'll see you next episode of Airwave. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more.